And let's open in prayer. Lord, that the power of your word and the work of your spirit as it lives and works in each of us would be an understanding that leads us down the path of spiritual maturity in a way that coming here. Be prejudiced aspect. I got the mic now. Go to Paul. I'm getting mic'd up. All right. Please come forward. Good morning. Um, I'm Miss Becky in Kids Church, and we are having our costume party today. And we're our favorite Bible character for our harvest party. So we have Fiona. Fiona, who are you today? Esther. David. We are today. We are finishing through heard the 
the old adage that says an attorney that represents himself has a why did you say that so enthusiastically <laughs> I don't think I've gotten that good a reaction out of sermons in a while has a fool for a client so in the uh, annals of Lake Oswego I was cited for a traffic citation being on my phone while I was driving and I thought I can win this I'll take it to trial so I did I went and I appeared in front of the judge who is also a part-time judge and an attorney and I have cases against him and uh, so I thought this is a piece of cake and as I the evidence came out the judge says well that doesn't show Mr. Moore was on his phone I thought yes so we got to the end and to my surprise he ruled against me I lost so um, so I'm going to take it up on appeal, but <laughs> but maybe that adage is right. An attorney that represents himself has a fool for a client. You know, it reminds me of Chuck Swindoll's story. He was talking to his wife, Cynthia, one day, and he said, I'm particularly troubled by a circumstance that I just want to get out and drive. And while I drive, I'm going to lose my license. And apparently that's what he did for a number of hours. He would drive around the community on a steering wheel, better not do that through Lake Oswego, <laughs> and uh, he would read. And he later on was inclined to give that story at, in one of his sermons, and at the end of his sermon, a man came up and gave him a business card, and he said, if you need it, let me know. It was a business card of a guy who owned a body shop. <laughs> so there really is a reason for these rules about staying off your phone while you're driving. Uh, and actually, I have represented in the last few years three traumatic brain injury clients, at least young men, at least one of them, which the pho a phone was involved. So it's a serious matter. I'm still going to win on appeal. But uh, um, that's my life the last few weeks. But there's more exciting things that have gone on in this community. We have a newly married couple who, when I tried to embarrass and introduce them a few weeks ago, they were still in bed. So Neil, Neil and Shell Ellis, stand up. This is a, this is a romance that began right in this auditorium. Congratulations, guys. And if you Come on Saturday morning and went to the men's group, and you ask Neil how he's doing. He's a man in love. He's just wonderfully thankful for his new bride. Congratulations. More specifically, yesterday, two of our women left for Egypt, Judy and Muriel, for a short-term ministry for a week. And uh, that's a hot spot. I have clients and family that are canceling trips to Europe in November and December because of what's going on in Palestine and the Gaza. And I think we need to be reminded to pray for that. You know, <laughs> I've been encouraged to restrict my political comments up here, and I will. I am. I am. But this is not political. This is real. And God said 
that he will bless those who bless the seed of Abraham and will curse those who curse the seed of Abraham. And the issue is not whether Israel is a godly nation. They are not, truthfully. There are believers and unbelievers in Israel. But we're told that the center point of the prophetic future for us is around a nation that was brought together when it was in 1948 and that it will exist for millennia with enemies who want to destroy it. And for that reason, for God's purposes, in terms of what's going on in our world, we should be praying for Israel and for all the innocents on all sides of that um, event that are uh, at risk and ultimately uh, many who will die. Uh, so let's pray not only for Israel Memorial, Memorial Labor Day Parade, but also for the international events that are going on. I, I always come back um, in my prayers as I pray that God will bind the evil in this country and in this nation and this world. I always come back to 1 Timothy 2 where Paul writes, I urge then first of all that requests, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. That's the agenda. That's our prayer. And um, it's true for this country. It's true around the world that if God allows us the latitude until Jesus returns, we as a church and as a people are honored to be able to live godly and holy lives, praying for those who are in authority over us, even though they're not following the dictates that we are. So that brings us up to date in terms of getting caught up in the last few weeks in terms of what's happening. We are in Matthew chapter 7. I'll see your Bibles. How many of you brought your Bibles today? Good. I want to encourage you on your study Bibles. Some of you are buying study Bibles now, and there are two that are great. There's the Ryrie Study Bible, and there's the one I use, which is the New International Version Study Bible. They have great notes, great helps in terms of getting you through uh, and understanding some of the passages that may be more challenging. Each of those two versions, I'm told, have sold about two million copies. So um, you'll find yourself enjoying your study in the scriptures if, in fact, you have at times some aids in a study Bible. We're in Matthew chapter 7. We began in Matthew chapter 5 with Jesus surrounding himself by disciples and others and teaching us what it means to be blessed, what it means to be holy. And he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. And then out of those exclamatory thoughts about what it takes to be blessed, and happy and joyful in those who follow God and are followers of Jesus, he ends with, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So as we get to the end of Matthew 5 through 7, we're going to find similar kinds of emphases 
and it's structured in the analogy of being the construction or building of your spiritual home. So when we get to Matthew chapter 7, we find that, and following consecutively from the last time we were together, that we're instructed that we are to, concerning the golden rule, ask and it'll be given to you, seek and you'll find, knock and the door will be opened to you, for everyone who asks receives, he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks the door will be opened. And so we understand that that instruction means you start on your knees in terms of the circumstances of life you're in, and you ask of God for the intercession that comes with him intervening in a way that counts for eternity. But, you know, hold on to your seats. Prayer is not enough, except in unusual circumstances, because he says you also are to seek. You are to move out with your prayers. You are to act on the things that you believe are honorable to God. That's the seeking. And the knocking is the next step, which is persevering. And so while I'm not going to check the back of your garages as to whether you put up ASK on the back of your garages, put it somewhere in your brain that that's the instructions of Jesus to begin in prayer to move out in action, and to persevere. And we know that anyway, don't we? From Matthew chapter 18, and the wonderful widow who went to the unrighteous judge who feared neither God nor man and continued to intercede for justice, and finally the judge was worn out and said, I'm going to give this woman what she asks for. And Jesus said, I give you this parable to teach you that you're to pray. So we pray with persistence, we pray with action, we move out. For our text today, the final part of the Sermon on the Mount takes us through three sections which at first seem a little puzzling. For example, beginning in verse 13, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Some well-intentioned, even pastors and theologians, had tried to explain away these warnings as warnings to being a believer or an unbeliever, but there's nothing in the context that justifies that. This is a warning to disciples. It's a warning to you and me. Say what? It's a warning about spiritually growing up. And spiritually growing up, we're going to find, takes hard work. It takes good decisions. It means, as Rob so effectively said two weeks ago when he was preaching about faith is by, by, life is by faith and not by sight, it means redirecting your attention away from what might feel good, might be your instinct in a direction to go, and following that compass. Great illustration, I still remember it. It is one that says, go for that narrow gate. You understand that the Christian experience is one of discipline. It's one of diligence. A well-known NBA star was asked toward the end of his career, record-setting career, when do you rest? And he said, at the end. I'm only in the middle. 
And Kobe didn't know that he and his daughter would shortly after that die in a plane wreck. But his instructions were correct. We're not at the end, guys. We're in the middle. And Jesus' instructions to us is to persevere in a way that asks, that seeks, that knocks, and looks for that narrow corridor that's honorable to him. Second warning in our section comes with tree and the fruit. And in the context of false prophets, and you see that in verse 15, watch out for false prophets, he warns about good fruit and bad fruit. And then comes this almost devastating warning um, that is comes and says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell you plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. I have more than one Christian that's come to me and says, John, does that apply to me? I have those in our own assembly that are struggling with that right now and with the assurance of their salvation. And again, we say, look in the context. The context here is talking about false prophets who bring a message that's not a message of Jesus. It's not a message of the kingdom of God. It says, just get involved in the things that are good works. And to them, who are not confident in the cross, who have not followed the adage, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, but have relied on their own self-assured intentions in life, they would come, as it were, to the gate of heaven, and heaven would say, get away from me, you evildoers, I never knew you. It's not something for you and I, cloaked in the salvation of Jesus and in the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit, as we believed in him and received him, need to fear. But it's a warning to those who choose the wide gate instead of the narrow gate. And finally, we come to our section for today. The wise and the foolish builder. Therefore, everyone who hears, verse 24, these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his home on the rock. Now, in the context here, I want you to notice the words, put them into practice. When you're doing your own study in the Bible, if you see a phrase and then you happen to see it repeated in the same paragraph, all kinds of stars and off in your brain. It says, and put them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house. Yet it did not fall. And we say, that's the house I want. But the warning is, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice, see that phrase repeated? All of a sudden it says, okay, we're making a point. Jesus is instructing as to what it takes to be a practicer, a practitioner of the faith, and what it takes to be a non-practitioner of the faith. To believers, he's saying this. It's like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rains came, the streams rose, and the winds blew, and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. Now, if we understand this correctly, and we're sitting at the feet of Jesus, then your and my reaction would be, as we read, 
When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as the teachers of the law. Let's give you a hypothetical family this morning. This hypothetical family is a successful family. It's a large family. It's a God-believing family. It has a reputation in its community as one who is honorable to God, who follows God, who is careful to follow the dictates of the kingdom of God. It's a large family because there are many children in this family, multiple sons and daughters. It's a wealthy family. It's well-established. But what we don't know about this family is what's going on behind the front door. Because inside that house, there are odd kinds of things happening. There are parents who are favoring certain children over others. There are children who are favored who may be making missteps in pointing out their standing with their parents as against their sibling. And as you might expect, that leads to jealousy. It leads to conflict. But it led to worse for this family because this family plotted and decided they would exclude the favored child in the family. And so they plotted and at one point sabotaged and kidnapped the youngest in the family and what they thought of disposed of him. Done. We're done. Now this troublemaker is out of the family. Our parents have no one to favor anymore. What do you do in a situation like that? If you are someone who others have taken unfair advantage of because what you think are reasonable or good positions in life, how do you react? How do you understand it? In order to understand it, we want to not only build a foundation, as we've talked about for this message today, but we want to build some building blocks in terms of understanding life for a Christian. And in that regard, Job is one who you can never get enough of because Job was one who stripped of his wealth, his family, and ultimately his health. Everything nailed down for Job was coming up. And in the midst of that, I mean, you get to the end of Job, you find out what he learned. It's a great lesson in chapter 42. But in the middle of Job, you find out his rock, the thing that kept him stable. And we read in Job chapter 19 that as his friends came and gave him conclusions that he must have sinned because that's why things are happening, he said, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he'll stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another, for my heart yearns within me. Now, he had wished just before he said that, that his words would be inscribed with an iron tool on lead, engraved in rock forever. It was, as it turned out. And we read that Job's stability in life came from a core conviction, a character 
that was rock solid, that regardless of circumstances, he was not going to walk away from his confidence and faith in God. In good health, in bad. With death in his family, with loss of wealth and riches. Now, in our context, the things that Jesus taught about on the Sermon on the Mount are elaborated in the epistles. And by way of foundational fundamentals in life, we go to a passage like Hebrews chapter 11. In Hebrews 11, it says, without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Okay, we can wrap our hands around that, our hearts around that. But it also says in 2 Corinthians, Paul writes, we live by faith and not by sight. 2 Corinthians chapter 15 says, again, the building blocks of our faith, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal and immortality, then the saying that is written will come back. Death has been swallowed up in victory. When, O oh death, is your victory? Randy. Randy's doing multi multiple tasks this morning on the live stream and on the crumbs and now on the mic. Where is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers, here it is, and catch it. Stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. What a wonderful passage that says, buckle up, because you're in the middle. You're not at the end. It's not time to rest. You know, as an aside, and in my classes at Multnomah, um, I would get into rabbit trails, and my students always said they liked those more than my regular instruction which is kind of ironic because I hold one rather ignoble record at the Bible college I taught at. When I was a senior in high school and a cocky kind of arrogant young man who sat in the pews at Central Bible Church under Dr. John G. Mitchell, I made a comment to some of my friends one day about how foolish Multnomah was for all the silly rules that they had. I didn't know it, but the registrar from Multnomah was sitting behind me, listening to me say those things. And when I later on that year applied to be a student at Multnomah, I was surprisingly rejected. So my ignoble record is that I'm the only person that was ever rejected as a student and later on ended up on the faculty. Go figure. But it does lay out for us the fact that we are ones who never give up in the circumstances of life. We are to be ones, as that Second Corinthians passage says, always doing the work of the Lord. I love, and we've been working on this as men, in First Timothy 6, that with food and covering, we're to be content. And everything after that is bonus. Everything after that is wealth. So in America... Once our basics are met, everything else discretionary is something that the text says, be rich in good works. 
Leverage what you have in a way that counts for eternity. Property. Relationships. Money. And time. Those things are things that we are to be involved in the labor and work of the Lord. Moving on through the fundamentals, we get into 1 Peter chapter 1, where the text says, Praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for in his great mercy he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. The inheritance is kept in heaven for you. That empty tomb, that stone rolled away, is our golden hook upon whom our faith is hung. 1 Corinthians 15 says, If he didn't raise from the dead, we are of most people to be pitied. But he came out of that grave. The rock was just rolled away so they could show to the other disciples what had happened. But he conquered death. He now is with the Father and has ensured for us an inheritance that will last for eternity. And finally, Psalm 91, verses 1 and 2. This should bring you great comfort. You might want to circle this in your Bible when you're discouraged. Whoever dwells in the shadow of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I'll say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God, in whom I trust. You know, Horace Greeley was correct. He said, fame is a vapor. Popularity is an accident. Riches take wing. Only character endures. So what we want to be is people of character. People who are established. People who follow the instructions of Jesus on the mountain. Who practice the words that we hear from him. You know, in fact, the hypothetical family newsflash wasn't hypothetical. Who was it? Good. Joseph. You said that less enthusiastically than you said the word fool, but (laughs) I'll still plan that you're tracking with me. Because that hypothetical family, that family of Joseph, has some earmarks that should give us a great encouragement, like the book of Job a couple weeks ago, today, the man Joseph. Genesis chapter 45. Let me bring you up to date on Joseph. Joseph, at the age of 17, was favored by his father, giving a multicolored cloak and interpreted dreams. I don't know how wise that was, but it was. And they ended up throwing him in a cistern. And as a young man, they stripped him of his coat. They put him in a cistern. And then eventually they uh, had a a caravan of Ishmaelites coming by. And they say, let's sell him to them, which he did. He went from the Ishmaelites into Egypt. And then from Egypt, he found himself in soon favor in Potiphar's house. Only at the resisting of Potiphar's wife's advances to find himself in prison. Then in prison, 
and in the interpretation of dreams in prison, and sprinkled from chapter 37 of Genesis through chapter 50 of Genesis are phrases that keep popping up, and God found favor with Joseph, and God found favor with Joseph. Wonderful encouragement. Take 30 minutes and read those passages if you want. But in that context, he found himself not only in prison, but also through the um, interpretation of dreams, he found himself as a visios to the Pharaoh, a second-in-command. So from prison, he went to second-in-command, and in second-in-command, he had the opportunity, as his brothers traveled to him, first because of the famine in Palestine, and later on, with the encouragement of bringing Benjamin as well, in the disclosing of himself to his brothers, Genesis 45 says this, and there are three parts. He said, and now, do not be distressed, and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. There really are three C's in Joseph's life. The first is conviction. Do you look at your life that way? Do you look at the things which seem like anomalies, our vicissitudes, our mistakes, and you say, God was out of control in that. Joseph didn't. From the cistern to the caravan to the refusing the advances of Potiphar's wife, to prison, to being second in command to the Pharaoh, he said, don't be distressed. It was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. That conviction says God makes no mistakes. There are two ways in which Christians are discouraged in our life. And one of the two is when circumstances happen in our life that we don't understand. For me, a supposed leader in the church as a father who bailed out on the family, raised by a single parent. Single parent died of multiple sclerosis at a fairly young age. Was in an auto accident and almost killed. And then he uh, maneuvers around both high school and college and eventually, um, despite myself, being put in a place where God gives me an opportunity in, to influence the lives of those around me. Joseph said, God didn't make a mistake. He sent me ahead because of you, and that's to save you and the family. So building block number one in building your house, your foundational house, if you think God made mistakes in your life in the past, give it up. Let it go. God makes no mistakes. If he watches the sparrows fly and the hairs that leave our head, he is sovereign in every event and circumstance of life. His hand is in the events of the Middle East right now. We're to pray, but his hand is there. And if you're struggling, if you're discouraged because you don't understand the family that you were in or the circumstances that you found in life, Give it up. Second thing Joseph said, second principle. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, 
This is what the son Joseph says. God has made me Lord of all of Egypt. Come down to me. Don't delay. What's he saying? He gives God the credit for the things that have happened in his life. He said, God has made me Lord of all of Egypt. Second stage of this building block. Have you got things that have happened to you which you just refuse to believe are from God's hand? Could be the death of a family member, a sibling. It could be the loss of health. It could be reversal financially. Circumstances in life that in the privacy and secrecy of your own heart, even if you're a regular, faithful Christian attender, you don't believe God's hand was in that. Joseph says, give it up. He says, this is what your son Joseph says, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Through the whole path of everything that's happened, he is one who not only has the conviction that God's hand was in his life, but he gives God credit for it. Finally, and this is a verse you're most familiar with in the life of Joseph, in chapter 50 and verse 20. Later on in instructing his family, he said, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what's now being done, the saving of many lives. First, there was a conviction, a rooted determination that said, God makes no mistakes in my life. Second, the credit given to God that says, I'm going to thank you for the things you brought into my life. I'm not going to resent it. I'm not going to take issue with you. I'm not going to go to battle with you about it. I'm going to bow my knee and say, this is from the hand of God. And finally, the confidence to say, there's no power on earth that's going to stop God's purposes in your life as you follow him. Spurgeon was right. God's man is invincible until his life's work is done. And after that, there's no power on earth that will keep him for another day. The kind of joy that comes, the kind of rock-solid, ethical, determined joy that comes out of that is one that brings honor to God. You know, I often like the Peanuts cartoon, and at one point, Snoopy has discovered a frozen pond, and he's sliding around on the pond on his paws, and Miss Troublemaker Lucy comes, and she comes up to Lucy, and she's on skates. And she comes up to Snoopy, and, yeah, and she's on skates, and she says, Snoopy, what are you doing? She says, I'm skating. And Lucy, you're not. You don't have skates on. You're sliding. You're not skating. To which Snoopy said, I don't know why I was so stupid. I thought I was happy doing what I was doing. <laughs> don't let people distract you from the kind of things that bring joy as you follow Jesus. Don't worry if you get critical comments. You know, if, um, if we all wait to be seeking the approval of men, just start holding your breath. 
because it's never going to happen. It's never going to happen in a world that is committed in a broad path and Satan in a dispositional way to, dis, to, uh, to discard Christians from their purpose of growing up in the faith. Jesus was right when he said, instruct those who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice to be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. The rain comes, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against it, yet it didn't follow because it had the foundation on the rock. That's our foundation. Don't apologize for it. Don't blink. And don't stop working. You're not at the end yet. Let's pray. Lord, we, we're grateful for your word that gives us the kind of instruction that says we're to persevere. We're to be people who take our refuge in you and the work of Jesus on our behalf. And we're to be ones who want our lives to count for eternity. Would you be pleased to take our offerings of our life and the circumstances and means around us and use them in a way and by your spirit that brings an enlarging of the kingdom until Jesus returns. In his name we pray, amen.